when people say, let's go grab coffee, they're not just saying, let's consume caffeine. They're saying, no, 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 let's connect. And so from our point, it was, all right, how can we help a diverse group of people connect? Um, and honestly, it was like the pandemic that catapulted us into territories that we never thought that we would have been in. Welcome to Disciples Make. On this podcast, we share the testimonies and explore the craftsmanship of Christ's disciples who are makers in various fields and professions from around the world. Make sure to go to our website, disciplesmake.com or our YouTube channel to view our visual library of the craftsmanship and testimonies of Christ's disciples. We exist to encourage the believer and to reach those seeking truth. We know our maker, therefore we go and make. We were so thankful to have been able to interview John O. Corbin and I are always so moved when people of his caliber are so willing to take the time to share their story with us. As you've probably guessed in this episode of Disciples Make, we're exploring Jesus and coffee in the life of John O. And in the few episodes before this one, in relation to the testimonies that were shared by our generous and amazing guests, we explored Jesus and wilding, Jesus and making molecules, Jesus and DJing, and the list goes on and on. One thing that all the makers who we've interviewed have had in common is their love for the King of Kings. So back to today's guest. As stated on his website, johno.co, and I quote, Everything in John's life hinges on the power of words, both spoken and written. Whether it's preaching, writing books, speaking into other people's lives, framing new narratives through ventures like Portrait Coffee, or enjoying books and movies with his wife Chandra and daughter Ava, in one way or another, everything John does intersects with the beauty and power of words, both how he has been shaped by them and how he uses them to shape the world around him." End quote. John O is one of the co-founders of Portrait Coffee in Atlanta, Georgia. He's an author and his latest book is titled, We Go On. He's a co-director of the Crete Collective, which, and I quote from their website, exists to establish gospel-driven churches in distressed and neglected black and brown communities, end quote. And not only that, but John was also a pastor for 16 years. We'll be learning more about much of all of this today as we talk about Jesus and coffee. So 20 years ago, I had zero clue how my life was going to turn out. I, and 20 years ago, to the best that I know, I don't know if I had, you know, aspirations for this is what I'm going to do next. Like, I'm, I'm not type A. I'm not a high achiever. I just kind of like to, you know, live in the present and try to make the most that I can out of it. And so the past 20 years for me have just been being convinced that I'm in God's will, being convinced that I'm doing what God wants me to do because 
I see a need and I see a bunch of needs and there's certain needs that like burden me or just weigh me down where I can't shake it. I take an assessment of like, what can I do about that? What gifts do I have that can help about it? And then I look for opportunities to be able to meet those needs, right? And so, you know, there's like need, burden, gifting, and opportunity. And then where those four roads intersect, I assume. All right, God, this is where you have me to do. Need, burden, gift, opportunity. That's a really introspective way to look at life. One that moves you toward action. I imagine that the kind of heart that views life in that way is marked by an embedded sense of community. One that you could say comes naturally, perhaps? Community for me, uh, as, as I grew up, it was like, a, it was the like water that I swam in, right? So there's somebody that said, um, um, if you want a definition of water, uh, don't ask a fish, right? Because a fish just lives in it, right? Um, that's kind of how it was for community, for me, right? I was just a fish in that water. So uh, my dad is the first of 10 kids. My mom is the second of eight kids. They had five of us. So I'm the third of five kids. My dad's brother uh, lived in New Orleans as we grew up and he had six kids and we would always hang out with each other on breaks and holidays. So my world, like I've never, I've never known, I've never known a world outside of community, right? Like I've, you know, I've never lived by myself, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, from home to roommates to marriage, like that's just been my life. And so as I think back throughout the course of my life, um, yeah, I think the story of my life is a story of friendship and community. And I've always had these pockets, um, yeah. It's no wonder that through friendship and community, John and his family found their way to Atlanta to do something that, in my opinion, can only really be done well through genuine care for the community and those around you. Need, burden, gift, opportunity. My freshman roommate that I went to school with at Baylor, who made the move along with us, um, him and a crew of people moved into the historic West End of Atlanta, which is where we are right now. And, and they were just like, man, we've spent so much time chasing the American dream. And there's parts of our city that people that look like us make a little money and we strive to get out of those places. You know, like we would love to go back in. Um, and so they moved here with an aim to, how do we join in and help to rebuild a community um, and after three years of just serving, right, uh, you know, being involved in the PTA, on the school boards, neighborhood associations, uh, people would, you know, come up to them and they would like ask why, like, why did y'all do this? Why did y'all move in? And they weren't obnoxious with it, but they didn't hide their faith. And they were just like, oh, because look, they had, we're followers of Jesus. And here's what that means. What it means for us is like, oh, 
he didn't have any obligation to us, but he chose to, in a sense, move in to this world that we were in with hopes to rebuild and to create a community for himself. And so they're like, and so tangibly, what we said was, if he was in our skin right now and had the opportunity to move into a place here in Atlanta, where would he move and what would he do? And they're just like, we've just been trying to do that together. And it was just a crew of people that said, um, listen, we've never really been a fan of the church, or Christianity, or Jesus and all that, primarily because they've seen bad models. But they said, yo, it's something about the way that y'all love one another and the way that y'all love us that they would say things like, yo, I think that if y'all started a church here that we would come. And so that was what led Richard to be like, yo, we need to start a church here. And it was another, right? There's a need, there's a burden, there's something that I just can't shake. Um, the particular giftings to innovate and galvanize, start a group of people, like I had that and opportunity. So that's That kind of commitment level so. and love is just incredible. Okay, let's backtrack a little. Before Atlanta, before planting Cornerstone Church and co-founding Portrait Coffee, I was obviously really interested in hearing the story behind how or when Jesus became real to John and what his first examples of the love of Jesus in the context of community around him were. First, let's start with the latter. I grew up with a very tangible expression of the best things of uh, the Christian faith, which um, they had just made it an attractive thing for me to think of uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus. I know there's hypocrites and stuff in the world, but I grew up around the real thing. So yeah, Jesus always felt magnetic to me. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way to describe Jesus. Magnetic. He truly is so magnetic. Okay. So those were the examples of the love of Jesus in the community around him. John later goes on continuing to elaborate on how he came to know the Lord. He started off by telling us about an incident that happened when he was younger during a time in his life when he felt like he was on top of the world in a way an 18-year-old would after they've graduated college and the future is looking really bright, which indeed it was for John. And in his words, just feeling like he was on the cusp of everything that he's worked for. It was at the end of the last summer of high school, and the incident was a robbery that he and his parents and siblings experienced at gunpoint. In that moment, you would think that John would be thinking about death and how he wanted desperately to live. But instead, he describes in great detail what transpired in those moments that truly changed his life. This is what, 20 years ago, last summer, me, my mom, my dad, my four brothers and sisters are out on this dirt road while guys have guns up to the back of our head, rifling through the back of the car, taking our passports and plane tickets, saying, if anybody looks up, we're gonna shoot y'all. And it was weird because at that time, 
you would think that the thoughts that would flood through your mind are death. I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of dying. The thoughts that were flooding through my mind, as best as I can remember, wasn't a fear of death, but a regret of a wasted life that I just felt like, man, I've lived my entire life. I haven't had impediments. I had to overcome these major obstacles and I have nothing to show for it. And everything that I gave my life to is powerless to intervene or to help or to save me at this point. And so it was at that point that I thought, uh, like it was all the things that I worked for were, were kind of on the same plane. But it was at that point, it's like, ah, maybe this Jesus thing is worth a little more than the rest of those things. Maybe it weighs more than the rest of those things. And so it was at that point, it was like, Lord, if you, God, if you save me, I promise I will spend the rest of my life uh, helping people to know just how good that you are. John went into more detail about what he meant by that, that he would spend the rest of his life showing people how good God is. It really shed a light on what his experience was in that moment about how good God truly is. And so it's like, oh, you've got no obligation to help out or to save me. But he did. And so I was just gripped by God's kindness to save us out there. And, uh, you know, like there's this verse in the Bible where, you know, this guy Paul that had a checkered past and God changed him. That what he brings out is it's like, yo, you know, the thing that actually leads us to turn to God is not our fear of punishment. But it's kind. It's God's kindness that leads us to turn to Him. So for me, at that point, it was like I wasn't afraid of like hell. That was not what brought me back. It was a, Dad, God, you were so kind in the way that you did that. What other aspects of your goodness am I missing out on by shunning you and trying to live life my own way? And so that, yeah, caused me to turn. Um, back to him and so I go to college that fall and am surrounded by people that are my age that look like me that are just following the way of Jesus in a way that was both magnetic and attractive and that was when like yeah faith really became my own and I started to think about all right if Jesus had the opportunities the platforms the relationships that I had, how would Jesus function in all of those? And yeah, let me try my best. One person who also definitely tried his best and gave it his all is the Apostle Paul. John touched on some of Paul's writing a little bit when he mentioned how God's kindness leads us to repentance. You'll find the verse that he's referring to in Romans chapter 2 verses 3 to 4. They go as follows. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, Paul here is referring to sinful things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Wow, how glorious and merciful the love of the Father is. 
that our path to repentance is marked out through his kindness, especially in that he so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16. I think we're all familiar with that one. I want to share a passage of scripture that really further emphasizes John's point about a changed man who became a magnetic follower of Christ, namely Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 read as follows. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's kindness leads us to repentance, his patience, his love, his mercy, and grace. So I, so for me, it was like, all right, freshman in college, I'm changed. I've got this one track mind. And I just saw like so much of my past and my worlds come together. So all that I did was the only thing that I could think to do. And it was, there was stuff about what it meant to follow Jesus that made sense to me in a new light. And I was just telling people the stuff that was making sense to me, right? So, you know, I'm not going to build things with my hands. I'm not going to you know, organize things or run organizations, but I am just going to talk and tell people. So I would tell them, and then people would say things like, man, I've grown up in church my whole life, and I never really got that. It didn't make sense, but there's something about the way that you say it. Would you tell me more? And so I just kept talking. Um, and then we started to have these little, like, Bible studies. And so we did that there. Um, and through the course of the next years, it was just that, right? Now it formed into, once again, a community of people. And the dope thing was we all had different majors. We all had different um, goals and aspirations. So our goal was never to get anybody to fit into a mold, but to say, yo, if Jesus had your major, if he had your web of relationships, what would life look like? And there was a church getting ready to be started uh, an hour and a half north of where I was in Dallas. So I was just like, all right, let me go and serve. And so I graduated from school uh, with a degree in marketing and went to seminary, started to serve at this church and did that for three years, met and married my wife and just, you know, taught math at a school, coached ball and just continued to do life. And the more that we did life there, then it was, uh, um, people started to say, hey, what y'all have there, we would love to uh, see something like 
that church that y'all have there, where we live in, you know, Philly and Chicago and New York and LA and Memphis and all that. So then that led a group of us to say, all right, what does it look like to maybe start a church in a city that's not as transient as the one that we're in now? And we was, yeah, it was a group of 25 of us and most of us were in our 20s. Um, and it's like, all right, we don't really have any ties here. We're all here in this town because of this church. Um, let's move to Atlanta. And uh, so we moved to Atlanta because it was a city that was very much, uh, or it was a city that was primarily made up of a minority group. It was a city of influence, right? That what went on here would spread across the world. And it was a city that had a strong college presence, right? Six major schools in a 10 mile radius. And it just felt like, yo, know, this, this could really feel like a beacon or a hub to yeah, continue to see, right, what God wants to do in the world, so. And so it seems that one of the things that God wanted to do in the world was have John O and his faithful friends plant Cornerstone Church in the West End of Atlanta. So we've circled all the way back to where we left off earlier. Need, burden, gift, opportunity. At the time of filming this interview, John had recently stepped down as the teaching pastor at Cornerstone Church. To put it simply, he did it because it was time. He further elaborates on that towards the end of this episode, but I bring this up because his life was in a pretty big deal transition at the time of this interview. And being that it was such a poignant time in his life, I just felt that I couldn't let our time with him go by without finding out what pastoring all these years has meant to him. Pastoring for me has been a very uh, unique experience, right? It's a... it is, I do, and I still feel like it. there is nothing like there are very few joys that um, are like being able to see somebody maybe stumbling through the dark in their life and they have an instinct or a strange sense that that if they just had a flashlight or if the lights just came on a bit, that they would be able to kind of move move on. And as a pastor, to be able to, you know, week after week from the pulpit or week after week in folks' homes or through text, just slowly help to kind of turn the lights on, right? So it's, it's, it's not a light switch. Pastoring is not a light switch. Pastoring's like a dimmer that you just can't rush on. And 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 so, I mean, for me, the joy has been to be able to walk with, you know, some folks have been with me since, yeah, Denton, or since right out of college. So for like 16 years, just spend time slowly turning up that dimmer um, and just helping people, yeah, find their way not just to Jesus, but to the like peace and contentment that he promises. So, um, yeah, like often I think one of the misconceptions is uh, people think of pastoring 
in the concept that they think of like a like priest, right? That, you know, that a priest is somebody that's meant to, you know, stand in between you and God and help foster that connection. And what I've learned through the years is like, no, 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 no. Being a pastor, um, you know, pastors don't stand in between people and God. Pastors are just there to make sure that nothing stands in between people and their relationship with God. It's such a beautiful thing to have a relationship with God, the one true King of Kings and Lord of Lords who created the universe. You start to learn and become deeply connected to his bigger plan of redemption and glory, but also the intricate ways in which he loves you specifically. His word becomes real and he speaks to you through it. So I asked John, what's your favorite thing Jesus said? Tough question, <laughs> but always fun to ask. After this, we'll finally get into what this disciple of Christ makes, namely coffee. There's a lot of favorite things that he said. One that comes to mind is, um, John 13, 34, 35, where Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, uh, I give you all a new command. Love one another. Um, yeah. In the same way that I've loved you, love one another. So he gives not just the command, but the extent. Now, I don't just want you all to love each other each other. I'm about to go do this cross thing. I'm about to go die. And in the same way that I've died for you, I want you to love each other with this self-sacrificial type love. And then he says, by this, everybody's going to know that you're mine. So the world is going to know that you're mine by the way that y'all love each other. And I love not just that he said it, but the context that he said it. So he says that to the disciples. There's 12 of them. And within that 12, it gives their names. And within that group of 12, there's a guy, Matthew, who's a tax collector. And there's a guy, Simon, who's a zealot. And it's important because Matthew as a tax collector was somebody who made his living previously off of the Roman government continuing to stay in power. So they lived under an oppressive government. And Matthew, although his people were, were oppressed, he made his living off of the government staying as it should, stay in place. I don't want to upend things. I'm good with the way that things are, the foundations of our country make Israel great again, right? That's Matthew. Simon was a zealot. Simon was somebody that was like, I'm not good with the foundations of this. I think the whole system needs to be burnt to the ground and start over, right? So Matthew was, you know, you know, Jewish lives matter, right? So it's like these two, prior to their interaction with Jesus are on the opposite sides of the spectrum. 
And Jesus says, hey, look, this is the way that the world's going to know that you're really mine. Not by the evangelist, the outreach, not by all the rest of the stuff that y'all think are important, but by the way that y'all love one another, by the way that y'all give your lives for people that your perspective group um, would dehumanize and insult. And again, it's like, oh, Jesus, that's so clear, it's so simple, but it's not <laughs> easy, yeah. I started with this part of John's coffee journey because I just wanted to display the heart behind the entrepreneurial endeavor for him and all those who were involved. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 4. It reads as follows, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. It's worth it. Christ's likeness, as is described in those verses, is truly displayed as the seed planted through which Portrait Coffee has grown. John also shared his own personal take on coffee, which stretches as far back as 2011. He shared what he's learned about coffee, but especially about what he's learned yeah. while living in Atlanta. Yeah, so we started the church here in the West End, uh, you know, the first people moved into the West in 2011, and they were the ones laying all the groundwork, not knowing that a church was going to pop up, but they saw, oh, I think that a church is a good need here. Started the church in 2015. And we called the church Cornerstone because we felt like in a community rebuilding project or in a building project, a cornerstone is the first stone that's laid, or so I hear, because you know I don't work with my hands like that, right? But you lay that stone there in order to give shape and direction and alignment to the rest of the wall. And that's what we felt like that the church was, right? That it should have been that spiritual anchor. However, um, a cornerstone, if it's the only stone that's laid, you're not gonna build a building. There's other stones that have to be laid. So seeing that church, the church get up and running, what we found was just that in being in the community for as long as we had, this is what, 2018, 2019 now, you know, the group for eight years, one of the problems that we saw was this, that we found ourselves in a community that was changing through gentrification. But the problem that we saw was that, um, the community was doing very little to help the legacy residents of the community. So the people that had been here. When I say very little, it's not like the community did nothing, but 
And when I say the community, I mean, we too, right, as a part of that community and that church, um, we would do things like job readiness programs at the church to equip folks and help them learn what they, the skills that they need to be ready for a job. And as we successfully brought folks through that, what we would find is that people would graduate from the program and they would say, I'm ready, but there were no opportunities here, right? So you could get a job here in the West End, but if you wanted a career in the West End that would pay you what you're worth and pay you a wage where you can afford to continue to live here in the, the West End, you had to go outside of the West End. There were no careers. So we thought, all right, coffee, coffee is something that we feel like could um, help change the economic trajectory. Everywhere that I go to speak, the first thing I do when I get off the plane is I go on Twitter and I say, hey, where are the best shops in Minneapolis, Baltimore, New York, uh, LA, Memphis, Little Rock, where are the best shops? So I go to all of them. And every time I walked into the front door of the shop, um, it felt like every school that I went to where I was the only black kid in my class. And so I'm greeted to this world that makes me feel like a minority or an outsider. And so I get to a point, I'm like, maybe I'm just gonna hang up this coffee thing because I don't wanna be like the, the Tiger Woods in this thing, right? I don't wanna be the only one like me. And right before I'm getting ready to hang it up, I start to like read in the book and I read the history of coffee. And it was surprising because I found out that 1200 years ago, coffee was discovered and it's native to Ethiopia. Ethiopian goat herder, so they say, sees his goats eating this cherry and this fruit and they come alive and he's like, what's this? This is the coffee cherry and you take the pit of that cherry and roast it and that's where the coffee bean comes from and it's been this industry that is right on the graph of growth has been up and to the right right for 1200 years and uh but i saw the disconnect and i'm like how could something that grows where black and brown folks grow that economically has a 250 billion dollar impact on the u.s per year why isn't something like that in communities like ours? Um, and uh, it was remembering my train rides in Atlanta that helped me make the connection. Here's what I mean. When I first moved to Atlanta 14 years ago to start this church, uh, the church that, that I was at before this one, I would ride the train because it's like, let me get a chance to know the city. And it's amazing what you observe when you're, when you don't really have a destination where you're going nowhere in particular. And so I would get on the train, the southmost train stop was airport station. And I would just ride all the way up north to what's called North Springs. And as I would ride this train from north to south, I saw it was crazy. Two things changed. When the train was at the south, the train was black, right? All black on the inside of the train. And both the inside and the outside of the train changed in the 20 minute ride up north. 
inside with each stop that the train went up north, more and more black and brown folks got off the train and more and more white people got on the train. So the train turned from Wakanda to Switzerland in a 20 minute train ride, right? But it wasn't just the inside of the train that changed, the outside of the train changed. So with each stop that you go up north, the economic conditions skyrocketed. And so it was black and brown people getting off this train before they could take advantages of the economic opportunities of a city that they helped build. And I was like, man, that's crazy, until I realized if you take the coffee supply chain and you put that right on top of the train stop, it's the exact same thing. Coffee grows primarily where black and brown folks grow. But as that supply train or chain goes up through processing, exporting, importing, roasting, retailing, by the time it gets to the $20 bag in the store, it looks like uh, the northmost stop of the train stop. And that was when I felt like, no, no, this is more than a coincidence. You know, I, I think it's an injustice, right? Willie Jennings is going to say, uh, geography is never an accident. There's something that went on. So that made me feel like, all right, I think we've got an opportunity to start a coffee shop here in the West End and to use that to tap into some of the wealth that coffee can create in order to not just provide jobs, but careers here in the West End that could just be our small piece of the pie, right, to change the economic trajectory. Simply put, um, forward thinking and truly admirable are the things that come to mind when I think of the example that John, his friends, and team set in loving their community and those who are part of their church in this way. He further elaborated on the ties between the coffee shop and the church, and I think it's super crucial that he did because he hit on very interesting points that gave me some things to think about as it relates to my witness as a follower of Christ and as an entrepreneur who follows Christ. Quickly, right, this is how coffee ties into, you know, the church and our faith. That again, right, it's not, right, we didn't start a coffee shop um, and when I say we, it's like the only connection between the church and the, the shop is my involvement in both. So it's not like the church started a shop, uh, nor was it, hey, let's start this place. Let's give people free coffee, right? Like, this is not like, let's kidnap and entice people with free coffee and then proselytize them, right? Like, hey, Heathens, right? Look, we've got coffee. Come, and now we're going to get... So that's not it, right? But for us, it was saying, um, no, 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 listen. Like, if Jesus lived in a neighborhood like ours, and he saw the type of economic injustices that take place, and he had, right, the opportunities, right, that we have, you know, what would he do with all of those things, right? We've started a church. We're sharing our faith. We, we're doing some of the more explicit things. What are the other things that he would um, 
do, right? And so for us, it was a, ah, well, I think he would um, intervene, right? I think that he could. You know, uh, Paul, the same guy that I talked about not long ago, who had his life changed by God and ended up writing so much of the Bible, um, he's talking with some people about what's at the core, what's at the heart of the good news of what God has done. And they have this little tiff and back and forth. And he gets to this place in this book, Galatians 2.10, where he's like, yeah, like, I was trying to make sure that we saw eye to eye, and we did. But then at the very base, I told them, hey, but the only thing that I really, or, or they, they had said to me, hey, Paul, continue to go and do your thing. But the only thing that we really want you to make sure that you really got, in addition to all that, is they're like, yo, we want you to remember the poor. And he said, yo, bet that was the very thing I was eager to do, right? And that what like, in the Bible, whenever it will use the word remember, like God remembered them. It's not just God mentally thought about them, right? Because God knows all, God doesn't forget things. Memory in the Bible is often associated with movement. God moves towards them. And so our thing is, all right, that word is broad and expansive. What are creative things that we could do? So that's what led us to say, all right, hey, let's come in here and let's try our hand um, at coffee to help to to address some of the material uh, needs of our community that, yeah, will provide a type of stability that is um, that honors the dignity of the people that live uh, here and honor their dignity. They certainly did. Like most entrepreneurial endeavors, unfortunately, you come across obstacles. And for John and his team, this happened early on. They found help, however, to overcome through what I can only describe as a clear and obvious act of God. You can come to your own conclusions, but I suspect that you might agree. Here's your daily dose of God's goodness through testimony. So we have this idea and we share about trying to start this shop that helps to change the picture that comes to mind when people think of specialty coffee, that we felt like black and brown people had been cropped out of the process or cropped out of the history. And we want to use coffee as a platform to do good, to help to um, uh, yeah, bolster or to show uh, black and brown folks' contribution, not just to coffee, but to yeah, arts, entertainment, history, all of that. So things get off to a very, very good start. And we find a building, um, the perfect building right here in the West End and work with the landlords. And we raise the money to build out the inside of a shop where people are gonna come and gather and be close to one another and drink coffee and hug and be able to see each other's smiles and look face to face. And um, and so we signed that lease, that five-year lease, uh, March 1st, 2020. <laughs> we know what takes place next, right? March 12th, 2020. 
the entire world says, hey, um, I know this community thing that we love to do, we're actually not gonna be able to do it in the way that we have. I know you like to look people in the face and see them smile in their teeth. Um, we're actually gonna make sure that you don't see anybody's teeth um, unless it's you know, pixelated through a computer screen for the next 18 months. Hey, I know y'all like to talk close and to hug each other. We're actually going to encourage you not to do that. Eating and drinking with other people in the same room, right? So it was like, so 12 days after we saw ourselves on the cusp of being able to realize this dream, it felt like the biggest obstacle. Um, but, uh, right, and this is, I think, right, part of where our faith comes in in that it was a, uh, we were convinced this was something that God would had had for us to do. And we know that it's not uncommon for there to uh, be things that come along in our journey that would have us question, is this the right path that we should go on? Uh, but it was, uh, um, we saw it once again as an opportunity for God to just do things in a way that we wouldn't have expected. Uh, so what I left out was that March 1st, 2020, we signed that five-year lease for the building. A week after we signed the lease, a movie crew came and approached us. They were filming a biopic in Atlanta, and um, they said, hey, your space is actually the best space for us to construct this storefront-type church. Can we rent out y'all space? So we sublet our space a week before the pandemic. The pandemic hits and they say, hey, we're not gonna be able to film, but we would just have to move our stuff and store it somewhere else. Can we just pay y'all to store our stuff here until we can film again? Um, and every month they paid us twice what we owed in our rent. And they were there until Thanksgiving. Interviews like the ones we do for Disciples Make are always so hard to end. We could have talked to John for another hour. Corbin could have filmed for another two. We could have enjoyed more amazing cups of portrait coffee. John made us some cups of coffee when we started the interview. But anyway, back to what I'm doing right now. As Corbin and I learned more about him, we had a sneaking suspicion that John's an artist. Yes. He was a pastor for about 16 years as of this recording, but from my perspective, I also saw and heard an artist. So naturally, I wanted to check if my suspicions were true by asking what his take, especially as a pastor, is on the intersection between church and art. Towards the end of the conversation, this topic led to a conversation about grief. As it relates to his brother's passing about eight years ago, as of the day of filming this interview. A difficult subject, but one that John's quite familiar with. John brought us into an understanding of his relationship with art and his thoughts on the intersection between church and art through giving us a glimpse into his transition from pastoring and the topic of grief as explored in the book that he wrote, his latest book, 
which is also a work of art called We Go On. Check out his YouTube channel for a deep dive into the book and conversations around grief. As he shared about all this and his perspective of where God has him in using his gifts since stepping away from pastoring, I couldn't help think that I'm not too far off about the whole artist thing. (laughs) But seriously, I just got so excited about seeing where God takes him next. We're definitely following his walk with the Lord through attending his events, following him on social media, and through subscription to his blog, which you can get updates about on his Instagram. Here's a little bit of our conversation and discussion around these topics. I didn't see the church really know what to do with art that was not explicitly connected to some type of explicit gospel presentation, right? So I saw the church encourage and praise artists who used their art in a very, um, in a way where the art was so like synonymous to proclaiming the gospel that that seemed like the only acceptable art forms. So I saw it's like, no, like, Gospel musicians, look at how they use their gift to serve the Lord. You know, gospel Christian filmmakers, look at how they use their gift to serve the Lord, right? Preachers, look at how they use their communication gift to serve the Lord. And so it was like that was the group that was nurtured. Um, And then there was a whole other world that was neglected. So it's like people that would use their art and make art that was informed by Christian perspective, but it was derivative in that, no, there are no clear, explicit ties or connections. I just saw the church not know what to do with the artists. And I saw the artists then conclude, and understandably so, oh, if I'm ever going to explore this or hone this craft or use it, um, the church is not really the place that I go to see this cultivated, right? So, um, and I don't think I could have explained that as explicitly as I do now. So even in pastoring, right, I realized how much I was formed in that kind of world of thought to the point where early on in my pastorate, it was a, I just couldn't offer anything else, right? So, um, yeah, I think now, or I think as the years have gone on and I've been exposed to other perspectives or artists who are able to share how Um, their love for Jesus, uh, their commitment to follow Jesus shows itself up in their art 
even if it's not this explicit connection, but how they're, um, yeah, how it shapes the thoughts, the themes, the sentiment, the heartbeat. Those are things that, uh, um, yeah, I, I think have not just challenged me, but excited me to, yeah, to the point where, where, where it's like, oh, I actually think I resonate with that world and want to lean more in and to be involved in it. The status quo of what church was and how I led and my responsibility and obligation as a pastor when the pandemic hit and the world was shut down, there were limited ways in which people could right, reach out to me and to us. And so now with more margin and all this free time, I found myself at a place where it was like, where I just started to, to create. And the more that I did it, the more I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's, there's other ways for me to use my gifts of communication in service to the Lord and there are ways that are like, oh, all right, it's it's very derivative, right? So it's not preaching or expounding on a text and making a clear tie to this is how it relates to Jesus. Uh, it's a little more broad and engages people on a deeper or on a deep level. But it's like, oh, Wait, wait, this isn't lesser than what I did. And I started to find, oh, I enjoy this. And I started to find, oh, wait a minute. Uh, there's people that need this and there are relationships that are being built and ways that people are being engaged and even primed to have these corrective emotional experiences with Christianity that are necessary before they even get to right that and um so i just saw yeah it, it just kind of felt like this this other world that i'd been blind to in the past right yeah i felt like yeah after 16 years of pastor right so from 22 to 38 right that's what i did you know, there's only been a six month span in my adult life that I've been a part of a church that I did not help to either start or lead. And um, it was in like creating things where people were like, yo, John, um, I read your book on grief. And they were like, and what really got me, right, was man, like, it was a book on grief, but the book on the inside was full of, like, artwork and pictures. It was beautiful. And, I w and they were like, and that was the thing that helped me, like, stomach it enough to work through, right? That it's like, it, it was like, with, like, coffee. Some people drink coffee straight. Some people need a little bit of like creamer and sugar and, and what they say is, no, 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 I still want the coffee, but I just need that to help my palate that folks were like, yo, I had to process through my grief. My grief was bitter like 
coffee, but they're like, yo, but the beauty of the book kind of felt like that oat milk, right? That it helped me, yeah, like take it in and work through it. And I was like, oh, but, and, and, and so it was great because like, no, 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 look, that's why I did it, right? Like I wanted the artwork to be there because people don't think about beauty when they think about grief, but that's because like grief is confusing, right? I wanted the book to feel heavy in the hands because grief is something that's heavy. And I've learned that there's a lot of ways to speak to people. And this is how my relationship to not just faith in general, but faith in following Jesus shapes things, right? That at the core of my faith is, you know, Jesus. And at the core of what he came to, to do, right? Like what's central to Christianity is the resurrection. The fact, like, not just that he died on the cross for since, which is what people hear. And it is very important, right? But what's at the heart of the faith is that, uh, no, he didn't just die, but he rose from the dead. He got up. And then I think what's also important is what's next is that he says is, no, no, listen, like, my death for y'all sins was one of a kind. There's nobody else that's going to repeat that. But my resurrection, it's not one of a kind. It's the first of its kind. So I think the heart of it is like, no, 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 no. Christians, followers of Jesus, we really believe that the reason why we can live our lives with a type of reckless abandon, giving away all of what we have or time is because this is not all that there is, right? That there's going to be a day where, you know, we're reunited with our loved ones, right? And um, and so I think that sense of hope in the midst of my grief is what changed and now shapes the relationship that I have with my family, right? My mom, dad, brothers and sisters and um and it shapes now with my wife and my daughter, right? That we just constantly find ourselves saying, no, like we want to live lives of hope. It's so much better when you're able to see visually everything that goes on in our filming process with Disciples Make. So make sure to go to our YouTube channel to see the visuals for this interview. We even got some visuals of John's latest stop for his book tour which was in Atlanta. I'm always so amazed when God creates these opportunities for us to have interviews like the one we had with John O. It's really so humbling that people would give us their time to do this. Um, and it, it never goes without notice in mine and Corbin's own lives. And it never goes without notice in the lives of those who watch these interviews and listen to them. So if you're listening, John, thank you. 
One thing I love about being on the Disciples Make team is how we get to peek into the lives of makers who are making while truly knowing the love of God, seeing him build their hearts up in the desire to see him glorified in all that they do. The work I do is a kind of discipleship for me personally, which I find pretty cool. There are other forms of discipleship, obviously, but this is one of the many that are currently a part of my life. I ended our time with John by asking him about his own thoughts on discipleship. When it comes to discipleship, I think the distinction that is most helpful is discipleship is simple, but it's not easy, right? Simple and easy are not synonyms. Simple is it straightforward, right? We don't have to guess what the example of Jesus was. It's clear. It's been outlined. It's been explained. It's been recorded. So it's not, it's simple to understand, uh, but it's not easy to reproduce, right? And so I think that our life is spent helping other people that want to commit to a life that looks like the one Jesus would live here. It's helping them identify the roadblocks to that and then just trying to help them scale those roadblocks um, slowly, right? right? That, uh, um, I think of Jesus on this world or in this world and uh, I think of the fact that he called men and women to follow him and he spent you know the majority of the three years that they were with him walking not running you know, walking everywhere and nowhere in particular right We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Disciples Make. Remember, our YouTube channel is our visual library where we have videos of each guest that we interview. We actually go on location as a crew and shoot the entire interview beautifully, as well as capture a day or a couple of days in the life of our guests so that we can get as full of a perspective as possible about everything that they talk about, including what they make. So go check that out at Disciples Make on YouTube and hit our subscribe button while you're there. Thanks in advance. We appreciate your support. Until next time. God bless you. Hey, I'm John Anwachekwa. Uh, I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a former pastor, uh, current author, entrepreneur. Uh, but more importantly, uh, I think the umbrella that holds all those in is that I'm a disciple.